the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA director, was on with Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation yesterday. And, and he had this to say about uh, the, what he believes is the extent of the herd immunity in the uh, general populace in America. Significantly lower, I mean significantly lower than what is being bandied about even in the form of conjecture from uh, CDC folks like Dr. Fauci. Well, it may be widely available, but I think it's of marginal utility and impact for these kinds of discussions. What serology tells you is if you have circulating antibodies in your blood, if you've been exposed to the virus and you've developed some level of immunity. But I think when we actually do serology on the population, we're going to find the actual level of exposure across the population is very low, somewhere between maybe 2 or 5%, and I'd put it on the low end of that range. That's certainly the modeling of the data coming out of Europe, where they have anywhere from 2 to 5% of their populations exposed. If you look in certain professions, healthcare workers, police, people who work on grocery checkout lines, uh, flight attendants, TSA agents, people who come in contact with a lot of people as part of their work, the rates may be higher, maybe on the order of 10% that have been exposed and developed some immunity. So you can make decisions in those professions to preferentially return certain people or put certain people on the front lines right away. But on the whole, we're going to find that a very small percentage of this population, certainly in the single digits, have actually been exposed to this infection. So the perception that there is 30 or 40 percent mm-hmm. that have been exposed and develop immunity, it's not going to be the case. I don't know how he knows. And again, Fauci admitted when he said 25 to 50 percent, we don't know. He admitted he doesn't know. But uh, we are, are getting some examples of this testing around the world. A team at the University of Bonn tested a randomized sample of 1,000 residents of the town of Gangelt in northwest, uh, the northwest part of uh, Germany, one of the epicenters of the outbreak. The study found that 2% of the population had the virus and 14% were carrying antibodies, suggesting that they had already been infected, whether or not they had experienced any symptoms. It, it seems to me that these numbers are important because that's what the medical professional said. It's important to do the serological study to get a sense of what the herd immunity is to start understanding what the potential downside would be intentional if there was another viral outbreak if you start sending people back to work back to so you know, back to social distancing but but socializing in particular regions I, I don't understand why these antibody tests are not online i talked to a sales rep for ChemBio diagnostics over the weekend uh, this is a company based in long island publicly traded company, 
they have a antibody test that's 15 minutes, needs to be administered by a medical professional. They've got a letter from the FDA. They're waiting for the emergency use authorization. She tells me there's another handful of companies that have similar tests and the, that are competitors that in her chem bio test would tell you both if you're positive for COVID-19 as well as what your immunity level is, not just if you had antibodies, but the level of immunization that you've achieved, the level of antibodies, which gives you a sense of just how immune you are, just what protection you have. And she said that they've had very little interaction with governments and there are other companies who they put out press releases about this. So why can't these things be brought online? Why can't we be doing representative sample testing simultaneous to the drive through testing that's being done for the symptomatic and so forth? So we start to get the numbers that we need to make better informed decisions about reopening. I, I don't understand. And that's why we have Dr. Roger Klein to help us understand these things. He is uh, both a medical doctor as well as a J.D., expert with Regulatory Transparency Projects, FDA, Health Working Group. He's a former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to all the alphabet soup agencies, FDA, CDC, CMS, HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Can you uh, help clear up this issue of the antibody testing, how important they are? Is it achieving herd immunity what we're trying to achieve and don't we want to try and measure that just as quickly as we can? First of all, the antibody tests have a couple of purposes. There's purpose in immediate patient management where you would, for example, find somebody who has antibodies, has therefore had exposure and, for example, got over an infection, is presumably immune and therefore probably not at risk of, at least in the near-term future, infection. And then there's the population level of looking at essentially exposure. So as far as herd immunity, I mean, Scott's right. It's probably lower than even 2%. The numbers of people in the United States have been exposed to this outside of New York is probably quite low. But I think that the reason the testing is important is because it gives us a handle on what the disease really is. We have many people, you've got to be honest, I mean, we've got a very small number of cases reported in, in the United States. And, you know, about half a million people might sound like a lot of people, but out of 330 million, it's not. The numbers of people who are exposed is presumably significantly greater, especially in a place like New York. And what it will help us do is get a handle on how severe the illness is for most people, what's the real death rate, what's happening in different parts of the country, how prevalent is it? Because I think it's a very large country, both population-wise and geographically, and we need to probably manage the situation somewhat differently in different regions. And, and there's studies online now, CDC's doing it, Stanford's doing it, there's other places that are, there's a place in Colorado. You read reports, people are starting to do serology. It's very important. The death rates that we're seeing, the study you mentioned in Germany was 0.37%. That's very, very different than the 1% that people were telling us as sort of a, as a comforting level. It's much lower and more in the range of a bad flu. How do we make decisions about reopening? Because Fauci is talking about, you know, we need to understand if we reopen and there's a rebound, then do we have the health care capacity and all these other uh, questions? So, so how do you make that determination? Look, I'm a person, I'm, in my view, I think we need to be immediately uh, looking at reopening in a safe and targeted manner. I don't even think it's a question. You know, you have two competing interests. You have economic models that are probably at least as valid as the epidemiologic ones that are talking about 20 percent unemployment yeah. and devastating um, millions of Americans 
finances. So you have you have competing interests. There really aren't data to support the, the idea that we're going to be able to prevent deaths from this, or at least in a significant way and could do so any better than protecting people at risk would do. The original justification was not overwhelming the health system. It wasn't that we we're going to prevent ultimate death. If, if very few people are immune to this disease, and we don't have herd immunity here, I think that's clear. And this virus is contagious and has many asymptomatic people in Iceland. They're saying it's, and these are preliminary data, but they're saying half the people could be asymptomatic. We're going to have to learn to deal with this. The good thing is, is the death rate seems According to Center for Oxford Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, the infection rate is somewhere between 0.1 and 0.37 percent, which is kind of a bad flu. The uh, projections about uh, the need uh, for ventilators in New York seems to be off by about a factor of seven or eight. Turns out that Trump was right, despite the criticism he received as questioning whether or not New York was going to need 40,000 ventilators. Uh, uh, the uh, number of hospitalizations is off by a factor of eight. I mean, overshooting it. All of these models are overshooting. Is this all the result of all of the evasive actions that we're taking? And so we would argue for continuing to take them. Or is there more to the story? Well, well people can argue that. It's hard to know. I mean, look, you, in New York, you, you may have, you know, six or eight people living in a very small space. And people have to go out of the house. It's pretty hard to avoid other people. It's hard to do real social distancing for many people in New York. It's difficult to say whether it's the result of the measures. Mostly we're talking about models that were imperfect based on fallacious or or not relevant data. It's, it's, they're really based on assumptions. Uh, the, the, entire, the problem that, we're, that we are, we're facing and still face is people are treating models as if they're data or evidence, and yeah. they're not. Yeah. They're like a hypothesis. Do we even understand exactly what this, uh, how, how contagious this strain of virus is and, and its properties? So you're exactly right. And first of all, you're right, we don't have it well-defined. But secondly, what I would say is that intuition is probably significant here. What one would think is, if, look, if somebody's coughing, sneezing, and spreading droplets all over the place, it's probably very contagious. So, so if we can if we can get the sick people out of the way, we're gonna we're gonna take it along a part of the you know good part of the way uh, towards stopping spread. But then you have the asymptomatic people or mildly symptomatic people who really aren't shedding the same level of viruses through, through coughing or sneezing, that sort of thing, but are, are still contagious. And, and that probably requires close and prolonged contact. But, but I don't think um, asympt- the asymptomatic population is spreading it as, as readily as, as we might think without prolonged and close contact. He is Dr. Roger Klein. He's an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Projects, FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, and former advisor to the FDA, the CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I hope everyone had a happy and blessed Easter. Unusual times uh, in terms of those who attend uh, service, mass, like I do, Catholic. Uh, I live streamed. I live streamed my uh, 
parish had uh, the services, the masses live streamed. And so that's what I did. Uh, you know, different, uh, different uh, approaches, different churches and different communities. Some did drive in Easter service where uh, people would drive to a parking lot to have some sense of community. And uh, windows rolled up, listened to a preacher uh, provide uh, a sermon and uh, conduct a service on the radio. Well, um, they tried to do that in Mississippi. And uh, in Greenville, Mississippi, those who did were fined 500 bucks. Uh, Christians parked their cars with the windows rolled up, but police fined them for violating the state's stay-at-home order. Temple Baptist Church, everyone there got a $500 ticket because they had a drive-in service. The pastor at uh, the church, everyone was in their car and the windows up listening to Pastor Arthur Scott preach on the radio. What is harmful about people being in their cars listening to preaching with their windows up? Christians, do you all see what's going on? Uh, We do, and it's terribly problematic, isn't it? Well, good for the congregants and the pastor at Temple Baptist Church. They're not just allowing their uh, uh, congregants to be fined to have their religious liberty rights trampled unnecessarily. Uh, The uh, Alliance for Defending Freedom rallied to uh, the help uh, rally to help the uh, church in Greenville, Mississippi, filed a lawsuit Friday on behalf of the Temple Baptist Church, suggesting that the executive order that prohibits drive-in church services uh, is a unconstitutional infringement. Government is clearly overstepping its authority when it singles out churches for punishments, especially in a ridiculous fashion like this. In Greenville, you can be in your car to drive in restaurant, but you can't be in your car to drive in church service. It's not only nonsensical, it's unconstitutional. At least somebody wants America to remain America during the pandemic. Uh, as that uh, that meme going around uh, sarcastically indicated, the meme of the Continental, picture of the Continental Congress with the uh, caption. Now, everybody understands uh, all this stuff is off if a virus strikes. Yeah, no, it's not. We want our representative republic and our constitutional liberties after this, don't we? Uh, all liberties to the wind until we're on the other side, so saith the public health professionals? I think not. Another example of this in Louisville, Kentucky, the mayor of Louisville uh, reversed his position on allowing churches to hold drive-in services Fire Christian Church, uh, now being represented by First Liberty Institute, sent a letter Thursday to Mayor Greg Fisher, who uh, believes that, quote, more lives will be lost, unquote, if he doesn't stop the drive-in services. So this church, through their council, sent him a letter urging him to change his mind. He wouldn't. So uh, the they sought a temporary restraining order, which they got. And listen to a a portion of the opinion offered by U.S. District Court Judge Justin Walker in granting the TRO against the the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky. Quoting, On Holy Thursday, an American mayor criminalized the communal celebration of Easter. That sentence is one that this court never expected to see outside the pages of a dystopian novel or perhaps the pages of The Onion. But it happened. 
And uh, this, of course, in a state where the governor, in advance of the Easter Sunday, made it known that any individual who attended a church service would have their license plate numbers recorded. That information passed along to local health departments and have uh, public health officials subsequently show up at their doors, their homes, with mandates that they self-quarantine for 14 days if you attend a church service on Easter Sunday. The order does not apply to drive-in services, but did include, seemingly, houses of worship, even if they implement social distancing efforts and have smaller services, including, like, outside, as you've undoubtedly heard reports of churches doing. The uh, Democrat governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir. Those who attend these gatherings can expect public health officials to show up at their doors with mandates that they self-quarantine for four day, 14 days. If you're going to expose yourself to this virus, it's not fair to anybody else out there that you might spread it to. Mm-hmm. You know, this of the uh, order or the statement by Bill de Blasio to uh, Orthodox uh, synagogues, you either close now or you close forever. These stories chilling at all to people? I think they should be. I think they should be. Former uh, federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy writing in National Review about this, about how the authoritarian overreach is unnecessary to fight the pandemic. And he makes a really good point. It's, you know, you want to get hung up on where the lines are. Uh, in this time of uh, virus, he writes, the cavalier decrees of status would make George III blush. It is a time when we legal beagles are peppered with constitutional queries. What are our rights? How compelling is the government's interest in countering the spread of infectious disease? Does the Supreme Court's strict scrutiny jurisprudence quantify the deference individual liberty owes to public security? McCarthy. Interesting questions for a law school exam, but they're the wrong questions for the here and now. Get back to first principles. Back to first principles. He writes, the Constitution is a solemn pact. It codifies the relationship between the people and the government system they have created, not the other way around. Before we ever get to the legal niceties or the parsing of these uh, competing interests, there is the fundamental issue of the government's political legitimacy. Do officials remember who the sovereign is? Hint, it is not they. Are those who so portentously remind us they are in, quote, unquote, government service, mindful of what a servant is and who the master is? It doesn't seem so, does it? Wall Street Journal opining on the topic about uh, this still being America, even in a time of virus. uh, Suggesting that uh, government officials would be better advised to govern with a lighter hand so as to maintain their legitimacy and uh, guard against civil unrest and uh, treat Americans as responsible citizens. And I think that last phrase that uh, the Journal Editorial Board uses, treat Americans as responsible citizens, is a key one because it implicates something else that's happening with certain public officials, not everyone, certain public officials in certain communities and states. I don't trust you. And if I don't trust you, I get to use my power against you. 
That is a philosophy that is very much at odds with that solemn pact codified in the Constitution that Andy McCarthy was writing about. This is Dan Crow. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Dr. Tony Fauci on with Jake Tapper over the weekend. Asked the question about uh, when the reopening could begin, what that would look like. Here's what he said. You know, I think it could probably start at least in some ways, maybe next month. And again, Jake, it's so difficult to make those kinds of predictions because they always get thrown back at you if, if it doesn't happen. Not by you, but, you know, by, by any of a number of people. We are hoping that at the end of the month we could look around and say, OK, is there any element here that we can safely and cautiously start pulling back on? If so, do it. If not then just continue to hunker down. And that's what, at least from the standpoint of the public health aspect, that we look at. Other decisions are going to have to be made at the level of the president and the governors about what they are going to do with all of the information they get. The only thing I and my colleagues in public health and medicine can do is to give a projection of the kinds of things that may or may not happen when you make these steps. Yeah, and economists need to do the same things about the steps that have been taken and the steps that may be necessitated if significant portions of the economy are not opened up uh, in the next uh, several weeks. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Luigi Zangales. He is a professor of finance at the University of Chicago and co-host of the podcast Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't seems to be a good uh, working title for what we're doing in terms of market interventions by government during this pandemic. Professor Zangales, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You uh, penned a piece with a colleague uh, at the uh, in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the first uh, disaster relief uh, bill, uh, the CARES Act, both uh, from a, a brief review of the fiscal side as well as the monetary side. Which is more concerning to you about what the government is doing, the uh, the loan programs and the direct payments to individuals or the four trillion dollars in liquidity that the uh, Fed has to work with? I think that uh, a bit of both, in a sense, I'm very worried about uh, the four trillion dollars uh, of liquidity and how this will be administered. But I'm equally worried about the fact that the payroll protection program uh, seems to have been designed not particularly well, both in terms of uh, speed of execution and in terms of targeting. As a result, I think that uh, my fear is that a lot of people who need this money will not receive it or will not receive it promptly. A lot of people who don't uh, need that money or don't deserve that money will be receiving, and there will not be enough money. And in fact, uh, uh, shortly after we wrote the article, yeah. uh, there was a pressure to go back to ask for more. Yeah, exactly as you predicted in your piece. That's right. Um, what, what are we to take away from the uh, nearly 17 million first-time unemployment filers the past three weeks in terms of what we're looking at if this, if the U.S. economy stays in this 
stasis for another three weeks or six weeks or uh, or longer? So there is no doubt that uh, the impact on the economy is going to be very large, and uh, the 17 million is an indication of that, and I don't think that uh, we're going to see anybody going to work anytime soon. So uh, that number can only get worse. Uh, So I think that uh, uh, the concern is to what extent we are providing uh, financial assistance to these 17 million uh, so that they don't uh, run out of money. And number two, to what extent uh, we are <clears throat> keeping the economy uh, in shape when we could reopen. So the concern is uh, some of those firms might disappear in the meantime. So if tomorrow there was a queue and everybody could go back, uh, not everybody will go back at, at the same, uh, in the same shape. So that, I think that that's what uh, we should try to achieve in terms of public policy. Uh, when we come back with Luigi Zangales, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, Fed policy, about monetary policy, particularly propping up uh, by buying debt in, uh, for example, the muni bond markets and allowing some governments that haven't exactly managed their affairs well prior to the pandemic to continue not managing their affairs well. We'll have more with Luigi Zangales, who's a professor of finance at the University of Chicago. He's also a co-host of the podcast Capital Isn't. Back with more right after this. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Luigi Zangales. He's a professor of finance at the University of Chicago, co-host of the podcast Capital Isn't. And uh, Professor Zangales, going back to the, the monetary side of this, the Fed policy, you know, the Fed has set up all these different facilities, separate, link, uh, separate legal entities that are going to buy up short-term business uh, IOUs, commercial paper, long-term corporate bonds, short-term municipal bonds. Um, they're also either going to buy debt directly from companies in the primary market or from other traders in the secondary market. Uh, all of this uh, buying of debt by the Fed, um, what, what is the, in addition to the inflationary pressure, the, the printing of money creates, what are some of the other pitfalls, concerns that the Fed's policies present uh, for you? So I think we are seeing on steroids what we see. So after 2008, the 2008 crisis. So if uh, that experience should teach us something, I teach us that uh, probably uh, there will not be a inflationary pressure, but uh, and that some of that intervention uh, is helping to stabilize the market. But the fact that this intervention is taking place twice in a decade 
suggests that the role of the Fed is changing dramatically and from being the lender of last resort is becoming actually the buyer of last resort, the stabilizer of the market of last resort. And I think that uh, a lot more uh, scrutiny needs to be put in place of uh, what are the implications from a point of view of policy of this intervention, because of course there are uh, important redistributional effects that a technical agency like the Fed is not necessarily best designed to address. Well, and 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 what does that do in, with propping up the muni bond market in particular? I mean, you have uh, uh, local units of government like the city of Chicago, state governments like the state of Illinois, but also New York, Connecticut, California. Uh, that carry huge debt loads uh, and rely on propping up their finances, uh, rely on being able to to borrow, being able to sell bonds uh, into the market to continue you know, propping up all of their uh, pension systems and health, unfunded health care liabilities in particular. Um, is Does this create uh, the, the Fed's intervention in the muni bond market? Does this create an ongoing moral hazard for those state and local governments? To the extent that COVID is unpredictable, I'm, I'm not so sure that this creates moral hazard in a sense. I don't think that uh, the current uh, uh, crisis is uh, certainly is not responsible of local governments. Maybe you can ask uh, whether at the uh, federal level we took initiatives too late. So I don't think that, that, uh, that uh, this necessarily prop up moral hazard. However, there is a, a, a serious issue that uh, we have experienced also in Europe uh, in the euro crisis of 2010 and 11. And the fact is that uh, if we rely uh, the market to put discipline in uh, uh, this local government, uh, like uh, the market is supposed to put discipline in the uh, single country government, then we are to face the fact that the market is not perfect. There are what we call in uh, economics multiplicity of equilibria. So when people panic, uh, they are likely to ask a very large premium, and this premium is uh, likely to cause the uh, fault uh, to begin with. So uh, the, the central banks were designed in the past precisely to intervene to avoid this multiplicity of equilibrium. So they will intervene to slow down panic. Uh, now, once they intervene and they show they can slow down panic, then the question is, why they should not intervene all the time, and the political pressure is there. So it's very difficult to uh, rely as a form of dis- discipline on the market when the market has some imperfection. This imperfection can be cured by the Fed, but then really the Fed becomes the discipliner of last resort. Well, and and, and it seems like in, the, in this, uh, what's new here as compared to 2008, is the Fed is bypassing the banks and providing credit directly. No, that's, that's a completely different ballgame. Uh, I was talking about more the purchase of, of muni bonds. Yes, 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 uh, yes. Like but, the purchase of agency. Now, now when we go right. into the direct lending, now even the, the Federal Reserve Act, the original Federal Reserve Act, uh, foresaw the possibility of the direct lending to the economy in a moment of a crisis. So this is not uh, completely uh, unprecedented. Uh, but it's clearly giving an enormous role to the Fed, a uh, role that I'm not so sure how prepared they are and how they will administer. And, and the risk that uh, 
this is uh, administered politically, I think it's pretty serious. Well, and, and the other thing you're, you're seeing from this intervention is uh, the belief by some who uh, apparently never passed an Econ 101 course that, well, I mean, if we can uh, if we can print six trillion dollars, we can assume another six trillion dollars in debt. Then why not make it 10 or 12 or 20? So let's uh, let's give everybody uh, uh, two thousand bucks on a debit card right now and a thousand bucks a month for the foreseeable future until a year after the virus has subsided. Let's uh, do a $2 trillion infrastructure project while we're at it. Let's do another $100 billion for hospitals. Let's do another $100 billion for state and local governments. I mean, if there's no consequence to printing money uh, and everything that the Fed or that the federal government does is stimulative, then let's just keep going. Yeah, I think there is a, a very serious risk. I think it's important to distinguish cases in which the Fed uses uh, its balance sheet to buy some assets that as long as these assets do not default, do not disappear in value, uh, will not, th- this decision will not have inflationary pressure versus uh, uh, a government spending more in, in deficit and creating the possibility of uh, an uh, overinflated demand at a time in which the supply chain becomes uh, more complicated. Uh, so we see now that there are some shortages in the uh, food supply. So uh, I think that uh, the risk is to have uh, to prop too much on one side when uh, the supply is too limited on the other. I think that that's, that's uh, one concern. The second concern, as you mentioned, is this idea that uh, uh, you can finance everything because even a country as big and as powerful as the United States, even a country that has its currency accepted all over the world and its debt accepted all over the world like the United States, might eventually face some form of uh, debt capacity, and that will clearly create problems down the line. He is Luigi Zangales. He's a professor of finance at the University of Chicago, co-host of the podcast Capital Isn't. Professor Zangales, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And sometimes it's difficult for people to believe that uh, those who have a, monia- uh, a monomaniacal focus on seeing Trump de-elected, seeing him lose in November, would even be uh, willing to go so far as to sacrifice the lives of others to see Trump removed from office. Well, uh, Ami Horowitz, you remember him. He did great man on the street bits for uh, the O'Reilly factor for many years. He uh, has another man on the street. Uh, this in the East Village in New York, posted to YouTube, where he asks uh, the trade-off question. Would you be willing to see the virus extended and cost more lives if it guaranteed that Trump would be removed from office? Listen to the answers. Would you go for this deal that the coronavirus lasts longer and is more severe but the president guarantees to lose the election. That's a hard question. So, that's a hard question. I, 
I don't know. That's a hard choice to make. Sorry, guys. I would go for the long virus. I want him gone. Okay, no matter what. No matter what, yeah. Would you make that deal? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I would. I would. Uh, yep. Yeah? Yep. Frankly, yes. Hell yeah. Yeah. You make that deal? Absolutely. You take that deal? I would. That's a little low. Yeah. Let the coronavirus be more severe. I'd much rather he himself got it, but he's more dangerous to American people. He's more dangerous to the American people than coronavirus. He's worse than coronavirus? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He's more dangerous than the coronavirus? Absolutely. You agree? Yeah. Yep. Is there a number where you say, okay, I wouldn't make that deal, like a million deaths? I would still make that deal. Still make that deal. Yep. A three-word response, res ipsa loquitur. Uh, for those of you who need to brush up on your high school Latin, the thing speaks for itself, those responses. They're representative. I don't know what percentage of members of the left that uh, it's representative of. But that's a level of derangement that uh, really is difficult to describe. It really speaks for itself. And it also speaks to um, the mindset that we're seeing on college campuses, on social media platforms, and uh, certainly in Hollywood, about Trump and about ideas that uh, those individuals don't like, those uh, individuals that uh, are at the top of the food chain in those environments. Uh, And that's why Dennis Prager, our friend, and Adam Carolla put together the number one political documentary of 2019, No Safe Spaces, which is now available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Hollywood doesn't want you to see it, which is exactly why you should watch it and take advantage of the downtime you have to inform yourself of just how uh, dangerous are those who would seek to eliminate dissenting views in all of these environments and particularly as how uh, important social media has become in the age of COVID-19. No Safe Spaces, now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. Check it out with your family. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. Former FDA Director Dr. Scott Gottlieb was on Face the Nation yesterday. He had this to say about uh, China and the World Health Organization when pressed by Margaret Brennan as to whether or not it's uh, you know it's appropriate to talk about defunding the WHO as President Trump has, you know, in the midst of a pandemic. The president raised a lot of valid concerns. Uh, China was not truthful with the world at the outset of this. Had they been more truthful with the world, which would have enabled them to be more truthful with themselves, they might have actually been able to contain this entirely. Uh, And there is some growing evidence to suggest that. As late as January 20th, they were still saying that there was no human-to-human transmission, and the WHO is validating those claims on January 14th, sort of enabling the obfuscation from China. I think going forward, the WHO needs to commit to an after-action report that specifically examines what China did or didn't tell the world and how that stymied the global response to this. I also think they need to embrace Taiwan's role 
in the global health community and allow them to attend the World Health Assembly. Right now, they've frozen China out. The WHO has at sort of the behest of China. And that's hampered the global response because China's been a very important partner. To give you just one more anecdote, China didn't share the viral strains. And right. the WHO should have made them do that. Had they shared those early on, we could have developed a diagnostic test earlier, validated it earlier. Such an important example he gives at the end about not sharing the viral strains. A diagnostic test could have been developed earlier. So you want to talk about uh, the problems that America had with testing, and it's a legitimate topic of conversation. But, I mean, let's start at the source here. If you want to play the what would have happened if, what could have happened if game, then why don't you go all the way back to China rather than just limiting yourself to February and the CDC slash FDA's bungling of testing in America? Uh, well, that is uh, the topic of uh, a lot of op-eds and a lot of consideration right now in terms of exactly how do you do that? What are some options available? We've talked to John Yu over at UC Berkeley. He had a piece uh, with some suggestions and others have as well. And I bet Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano has some suggestions. He's the vice president of the Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. He's also the author of books, including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks. You know, I really appreciate about your summary there, which is so important is there's so much Monday morning quarterbacking going on now. And so much of it is highly partisan. And it's done by a simply not adhering to the timeline. They simply assume information that they have now that they just assume that readers will believe that the administration had in February and January, which just isn't true. I mean, you hit on the key markers there. Until you actually have the virus in hand, you can't develop an effective test. And so much of the early testing, people said, well, everybody else was testing around the world, but those testings had a high degree of false positive because they weren't good tests. And until we actually had the information and had to create that test, in addition with our own structure of putting tests together, we really couldn't roll testing out. The point about the Chinese lying about transmission, that was so crucial because that really pushed, really even starting an effective response in February. People had no idea. I had no idea. I was briefing you know, my leadership at Heritage, and I kept saying, well, at least we know that you know, human-to-human transmission is not easy. That's the saving grace of this disease so far. And that was simply untrue. And so uh, thinking about uh, this uh, larger question of how do we uh, make China pay for what they did? And I don't think it's just, you know, in one way, but some of the things under consideration, everything from defunding the WHO and delegitimizing that organization to uh, seizing or freezing assets of Chinese nationals to putting a new layer of vetting of the scions of Chinese communist leaders who they want to send to go to college or university in this country. A lot of, uh, a lot of ideas afoot. Yeah, I'm glad you had John Yu on as a lawyer and talk to the legal stuff. I would say one thing we can absolutely count on is a much higher level of what's called reciprocity. So whether it's journalists or how companies are treated or visas or foreign students or anything else, we still, despite being tougher on China, have much more liberal policies towards China than China has towards us. So absolutely, whether it's sharing information with the, with the World Health Organization or students or anything else, expect the U.S. to get much, much, much tougher on, we are going to treat you, China, like you cheat us. I thought the FDA commissioner's comments on the WHO are exactly right. We have to start with demanding accountability and transparency and go from there. And we do have a pretty big sort of Damocles hanging over their heads 
Well, we are the world's largest contributor to the WHO, and the threat of the withdrawal from U.S. funding would be pretty devastating. Uh, what's the uh, state of play in the military after that uh, flap that involved the captain on the uh, Roosevelt who was deposed and then the Secretary of the Navy went after because of his intemperate comments on deck, according to uh, reports, um, and uh, Trump suggesting openly that he thought that wasn't inappropriate language and so on and so forth, not to mention, um, and most importantly, the uh, number of um, uh, sailors who've been infected with COVID-19. Where are we with the military chain of command, the belief that uh, our military men and women are being properly looked after? Yeah, it's kind of like Hamlet where everybody's a bad guy here. So the Secretary of the Navy was relieved, I think, appropriately. He made very injudicious remarks before the crew which were, were not what a professional would do. So we have a new acting Secretary of the Navy, as I think, because we have a nomination of the Secretary of the Navy that's still pending. So as I understand right now, the acting Secretary of the Navy and the Chief of Naval Operations are kind of reviewing the whole process of what happened and making a determination of what's appropriate. So, uh, you know, 25 years in the military, I've always believed that the best thing is to keep this in the chain of command have, and hold, then hold the chain of command responsible. And, and so we see where we are. As far as the crew goes, I understand they're being taken care of in, in Guam. Speaking of the military in a different sense, the National Guard, the National Guard has been scrambled in a number of states to do a number of different things. So early on, it was to uh, provide um, support for the medical response and the states that saw the earliest iterations of the virus, like Washington State and California. Uh, more recently, it's been uh, to act as, uh, I don't know, election judges in Wisconsin in last week's primary. With, with respect to the National Guard being called up and uh, just sort of the military presence in civilian life, has anything you've seen concerned you particularly? No, you have to remember the National Guard is us. I mean, these are right. the people that are in the National Guard are, you know, our neighbors and our friends and you know, one day they're a cop or a garbage collector, and the next day they put a uniform in the military. So they are citizen soldiers. They're part of our community. We have a long-standing tradition of deploying the U.S. military for disaster response. People think back to Katrina. You have to remember virtually every one of those deployments in National Guard are what's, under what's something is called Title 32. And what title, that refers to the U.S., the law and U.S. code under which the authorities in which they're mobilized are. And under that title, the federal government is paying their salary, which is great because it takes the burden off state and local governments, which kind of deal with response. But the National Guard is responsible to the state and local governments, to the governor. And they are what they can and cannot do is, is really determined by what the governors say, according to the law and the constitution, the constitutions of the states and their law. And, and typically we use the military for all kinds of things. So being poll workers to delivering mail to helping out at old age homes, uh, all those things is, is appropriate use of the military. Uh, if there is things uh, that look shady, I haven't seen anything, I, but I haven't like, checked every news event all over the country. Um, it's, it's really the states, uh, the governors and the adjutant generals that, that are responsible and held accountable for what, the, what they're doing. One more question on the military, because I, I remember when uh, Trump had a lot of uh, military men in his uh, cabinet initially, 
that was a sign that he was some sort of authoritarian and there was going to be a military takeover of America. Uh, now we have uh, we have this task force response team, which includes some members of the military playing key roles. But that's not good enough for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, who want some some military person to be designated a czar and be the uh, the point person for the coordinated response. If, from what you've seen from the task force, is there any reason to add uh, another chief to the uh, to the org chart? Yeah, sure. Of course, what we need is more bureaucracy, right? That always helps. Right. More, layer, more layers of bureaucracy always makes me better. Look, it, that is reflective of something that we, I think, talked about before a lot on the show, which is much of the nature of the criticism is just partisan. It's we're for whatever the president is not for. Or even when we're for what the president is for, we have to say, well, he's not doing exactly the way we do. It's been, been highly unhelpful. I mean, and I think that's a... And the irony, of course, is as a uniformed military person is in charge of the logistics chain. First of all, you have the, the people in the uniform health service, which are, are a uniform service in the United States. And, of course, a lot of logistics are being done uh, under Transcom and U.S. Northcom, which, of course, are run by generals. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You guys be safe. You too. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, on with Margaret Brennan, faced the nation yesterday. His perspective on when the reopening can begin, what form that would take? Well, look, I don't think anyone's optimized really right now. We're not going to have the testing in place. We're not going to have the public health employees hired to do the effective contact tracing. So, you know, there's no question we're going to be opening at some at some risk. I think that's inevitable. There's a lot of pressure right now from the business community on not just the administration, but governors as well to start reopening the economy. So I think inevitably we're going to see a slow reopening of business activities through May. Um, with some risk, but there's always going to be risk. And if you ask public health officials like me what the optimal amount of testing is, the answer we'll give is more. Um, but we're not <laughs> right. going to be where we want to be. Um, so I think you're going to see a gradual reopening where businesses, where governors and mayors say, well, businesses can reopen, but you can only bring back 50% of your employees that are on, on any one shift. So you force em- employers to break up the shifts. Maybe you tell people over the age of 65 to stay home a little longer. You tell businesses you can't have meetings more than 10 people. You can't have conferences. So there'll be measures put in place to try to limit interactions at the workplace, but allow some work to get on. Yeah, here's the thing, though. There's no rush. No rush. And by the way, um, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Scott Gottlieb had a piece in the journal over the weekend. Uh, Employers being the facilitators for reopening. He writes, as employees return to work, perhaps as early as May, employers can offer screening at their place of business. Rapid diagnosis and containment will be a critical part of limiting spread. Bringing these activities into the workplace would make them more widespread and routine and can be done in conjunction with efforts to expand testing throughout the healthcare system. Right. I mean, ultimately, this is a local deal. You can get the green light, but that you want it. There's going to be certain parameters, best practices, uh, even trade-offs that are, are attendant to reopening. And I think most employers uh, facing the economic abyss and most employees, too, happy to make some of these real-world trade-offs fine. 
But here's the problem, uh, and uh, Scott Lieb, uh, Scott Gottlieb, sort of pointed up with the uh, you know slow phased return because there's no incentive to return, not yet. Morning consult poll, job approval numbers, pre and post, or pre and present, really, pre-pandemic, and now. Gavin Newsom has seen his approval rating go up 41 points, doubled, pre-pandemic versus present, morning consult. Andrew Cuomo, plus 32 points. Mike DeWine, Republican governor of Ohio, plus 31 points. And one of the more aggressive to shut down. Remember, he uh, postponed Ohio's primary election on March 17th, the same day that Illinois and Governor Pritzker decided to have their primary election. No consequence, by the way, in Chicago and Illinois to, for the Democrat governor. It's not even a question that's asked in terms of did that advance the spread. Gretchen Whitmer, who just imposed one of the more draconian measures over the weekend in Michigan, plus 24 points, two-thirds approval. Two-thirds of Michiganders approve of Gretchen Whitmer's handling of, well, approve of her job as governor. And ultimately, this is all tied into handling of the pandemic. Jay Inslee, plus 21. Whereas somebody who is a little bit late to join the crowd, Ron DeSantis, minus two in terms of his approval rating. That's still relatively high, but it's still in negative territory. All the, as I said from the outset, weeks and weeks ago. All of the incentives are shut down in the direction of shutdown. There is no such thing as an overreaction. I mean, there is on substance, but not politically. Not when you can whip people into a frenzy. Not when you can foment fear, the sort of pandemonium that we've seen over the last several weeks without consequence. No such thing as an overreaction is the unstated but... uh, so indicated posture of the public health officials. You even at least had Scott Gottlieb be honest. You ask a public health official how much more testing do you need, they're always going to say more. It's like asking a politician how much money do you need? More. And so different states are doing different things. Very interesting. Speaks to the different political cultures in different states. But remember, we look at the politicians and then we say Gretchen Whitmer's uh, order uh, uh, fining Michiganders who are less than six feet apart, up to a thousand dollar fine for not uh, social distancing statewide. Oh, my gosh. We focus on Gretchen Whitmer. Focus on the fact that two thirds of your fellow residents in Michigan approve of the job she's doing. Politicians form at the back of the parade, not the front for the most part. There are a few actual leaders out there, men and women of principle who say this is my judgment these are my first principles. These are the judgment calls that uh, upon which uh, are the, these these are the principles that provide the basis for the judgment calls I make in representing your interests as I was duly elected to do. And uh, I do so out of a belief in you know, this is in advance of your best interests, regardless of what's popular at any given moment. Now, of course, you could say, well, when people start to really suffer the economic consequences of another three weeks or longer, of economic shutdown, when you have more unemployed, when you have interruptions in the food supply, potentially, and I'm not fomenting fear. I mean, these are stories that are out right now. Then maybe attitudes will change quickly as people look for uh, new scapegoats. 
But right now, that's not the case, and it's not the case into this. Beginning this past Saturday morning, the order in in uh, Michigan, previously permitted travel between two Michigan residents will end. Jumping in the car to visit a friend, walking across the street to watch TV with a neighbor, nope. There are exceptions uh, if you're uh, uh, providing uh, essentially caretaking services. That's it. Uh, and, of course, all the hypocrisy of the rent-seeking behavior, the uh, the favored status of uh, favored industries that confer benefits to the politicians, uh, that continues unabated. Certain non-essential goods uh, prohibited, more restrictions on the sale of non-essential goods. But uh, in-store lottery sales in Michigan, no problem. State's got to get its cut. Uh-huh. Boston suburb that uh, has set up one-way sidewalks will fine people 100 bucks for walking in the wrong direction. I mean, straight out of Monty Python. So you, uh, you appreciate the uh, courage it takes, if you will, even if it's out of sense of urgency, that uh, Wisconsin's business community, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce Association, as well as more than three dozen, three dozen other business groups calling on Governor Tony Evers in Wisconsin to reopen the state's economy after April 24th when his order expires. You even uh, respect more what Governor Abbott is doing in Texas, uh, despite the fact that Texas has, seems to have managed the outbreak very well in terms of the uh, uh, in terms of the number of cases and the number of fatalities. But uh, Governor Abbott is uh, announced on Friday that he will be issuing an executive order this week that will outline the steps for reopening or beginning the reopening, the phased reopening of the Texas economy. But the big takeaway here is politicians are responding to the cues they're getting from their constituents. So maybe spend uh, less time decrying your elected leaders at certain localities in certain states and more time uh, talking, not in the living room, in somebody's living room in Michigan, but uh, through social media or on the telephone with your neighbors that are making decisions rooted in fear. And uh, as it uh, is well known, decisions you make based in fear almost invariably turn out to be terrible decisions. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Tony Fauci, Dr. Tony Fauci on with Jake Tapper over the weekend. Got into the uh, what would have happened if trap that the D.C. press corps is obsessing about. What would have happened if uh, things would have been different? Well, they wouldn't have been the same. The New York Times reported yesterday that, that you and other top officials wanted to recommend social and physical distancing guidelines to President Trump as far back as the third week of February. Uh, but the uh, administration didn't announce such guidelines to the American public until March 16th, almost a month later. Why? You know, Jake, as I've said many times, we look at it from a pure health standpoint. We make a recommendation. Often the recommendation is taken. Sometimes it's not. But we, it is what it is. We are where we are right now. Do you think lives could have been saved uh, if social distancing, physical distancing, stay-at-home measures had started third week of February instead of mid-March? 
You know, Jake, again, it's the what would have, what could have. It's very difficult to go back and say that. I mean, obviously, you could logically say that if you had a process that was ongoing and you started mitigation earlier, you could have saved lives. Obviously, no one is going to deny that. But what goes into those kinds of decisions is, is complicated. But you're right. I mean, obviously, if we had right from the very beginning shut everything down, it may have been a little bit different. But there was a lot of pushback about shutting things down back then. The uh, question neither Jake Tapper nor anyone else in the D.C. press corps asks, uh, doing the uh, what if it would have been different game, what if uh, CDC and FDA weren't bottlenecks on testing back in February and had immediately opened up? Uh, the development uh, and distribution of tests to the private sector. Because when it was left to their own devices, CDC and FDA, what did they test in the three weeks, the last three weeks in February? 3,000 people. When uh, Roche and other private sector operators were finally unleashed for the last three weeks of March, how many people did they test? 1.1 million. Well, how about that what if? For more on that, what if we're pleased to be joined by John Tierney, contributing editor to the City Journal, former reporter and columnist at The New York Times and co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Dan. What about uh, what about that? What if things would have been different at CDC and FDA, the CDC where Tony Fauci has uh, you know, been uh, a, a point person for two decades? No, I mean, it's. I mean, the real scandal of what's happened is is how how much the CDC and the FDA have gotten in the way of this effort, you know, that they were terribly unprepared for it and that the red tape has just slowed down every stage of the fight against COVID. Um, I mean, if they've been ready for this and, and if we'd had more data early on, it would have been easier to, you know, to take decisive action earlier and we, and we wouldn't have had to take such extreme measures probably. But they just have, I mean, the red tape has just been deadly. And, you know, people have been complaining for a long time now that the, uh, the FDA in particular um, has created this invisible graveyard, as they call it, of tens of millions of people who have died waiting for the FDA to approve treatments that could have saved them. Um, and it just takes them forever to do anything. And what's, what's striking in this is that they've actually been moving faster than usual. They've been, you know, uh, waiving things, issuing emergency authorizations. But even with, you know, this pressure from the public, from the White House, from everyone, they have just continually been slowing the process of approving tests, of letting private labs do the tests, as you say. It just took them forever. They, they actually forced some, you know, uh, some academic researchers who had to test and had blood samples in February that they wanted to test to see how prevalent this was. They ordered them to stop it because the lab wasn't properly, you know, federally certified and and because the the people who'd given the blood samples hadn't signed the right consent forms. I mean, this is, you know, during an emergency and they're basically stopping people from, you know, from gathering vital information. And it didn't stop there. I mean, it's just, you know, they kept delaying the test. Then when they finally let the private labs like Roche, as you say, you know, get into it, um, you know, some other companies came out with tests that people could have done at home, which um, and, and they were offering to provide these tests at no profit, at cost. And, and the FDA probably said, no, you can't do that. Stop selling them and destroy the samples that, that you have 
have collected. I mean, that's just insane, you know, to do that because this is what we need is lots of testing across the population to see who's got it, to see how prevalent it and, and how lethal it is. So, you know, it's it's terrible to see what the FDA has been doing. And uh, the other thing they've done. Is, well, uh, let's hold on to the, the other thing they've done. We'll uh, we'll come yeah. back with the other thing they've done. And also, too, just a discussion about is it a culture problem uh, that in terms of a periousness, you know, we, we know better or is it just a sort of good intentions getting in the way of of other innovators? More with John Tierney, contributing editor of the City Journal, former reporter, or columnist of The New York Times right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with John Tierney, contributing editor of the City Journal at the Manhattan Institute, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. And, John, we were talking about the FDA, and you were talking about uh, how they held up the progression of testing in February, which is pretty well established, even though there seems to be a focus on laying this all at the doorstep of President Trump. Um, and but but and also in your piece, the FDA graveyard at, at City Journal, you write about uh, holding up the uh, distribution of masks, even as there was hue and cry across the fruited plains for more N95 masks. Well, it was just insane where they were. I mean, um, all these manufacturers wanted to you know shift their uh, their production lines, so they made other things to make masks. You know, as a great you know effort to help the country. And they found out when the you know when they contacted the feds that that it would take them 45 to 90 days just to get approval to start production. And the FDA, it was prohibiting masks from being imported from other countries that didn't meet the official, you know, FDA standard for it. You know, until Congress acted, they were preventing hospitals from using masks that are virtually identical to a hospital mask, except that they had federal approval for construction workers. And, you know, they finally, you know, waived some of these things and allowed the importation of masks that are perfectly adequate you know, they just held them up for weeks and weeks. And, and, and even the people who were importing the, the approved masks said it just took so long to get through the licensing and, and all the other red tape. And you asked earlier about, you know, why is this? Is it this culture at the FDA? And, and part of it is, is this idea that they know better than everyone else and only they can protect us from bad masks. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the incentives are just so bad at the FDA, the, 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 they're bureaucrats, and they know that the only way that they will really get in trouble is if they is if something bad happens that they approve. So they have this huge incentive not to approve stuff because they don't get in trouble for all the people who die from treatments that didn't get approved. I mean, now we see it with COVID because we're actually seeing people dying because of of their delays, but. But ordinarily, it's this invisible graveyard of people who, you know, who, uh, I mean, it takes more than 10 years to get a new drug approved, and, and, and the cost has just gone up to, you know, three, more than $3 billion per drug. So there are all these drugs that are just delayed for so long, and, and, and there's so many more drugs that aren't developed because it's simply too expensive and time-consuming to do it. And we're seeing that's this, the culture. Yeah, down, and, and we're seeing this this uh, this uh, invisible graveyard problem play out with the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic too, in the sense that uh, 
we look at the number of people that are infected or sick from COVID-19, die because of COVID-19. And uh, we're supposed and and, and the, at least with respect to the media, the only lane that matters is that lane. The, the lane of people who are uh, getting ill will die because of the economic ruin that is being wreaked on uh, the American economy. You know, that's not, you know, wh- whether it becomes, to, you know, unfortunately, suicide or stress related illnesses, heart disease and, and the, the more uh, customary uh, frequent frequent causes of death. That's not considered. That's not considered. It's it's not the lives for lives equation. It's just these lives with respect to COVID nineteen, this pandemic, and everything else sort of is uh, secondary or certainly not to be accentuated to the same effect. It's this narrow focus, and we get this from the media and politicians that once something gets into the public eye, like COVID death, that's all that matters. We don't think about all the other deaths, as you say, from you know from economic ruin, and and we don't think about you know. Uh, the death. I mean, there's far, far more people dying of cancer and heart disease from drugs that haven't been approved, you know, because of the FDA's slow pace. Mm. But, but we just don't hear about them. And uh, you know, in, in my book, The Power of Bad, I just talk about the crisis, crisis that that we're always in this crisis, and we focus on one thing, and we just overreact to that. And, and that's what's going on with COVID, where that's all we care about right now. That's a crisis. We must avert every single COVID death, and not, and we're not worried about all the other consequences. Of, of shutting down the economy and the suicides and all the damage that uh, that, that that will cause. Well, so it's an, another area that is uh, sort of baffling to me, and I, I talked about this with Dr. Roger Klein, who used to be an advisor to the, both CDC and FDA, uh, the head of molecular oncology at Cleveland Clinic, and um, the, the antibody testing. A couple of weeks ago, Tony Fauci was sort of dismissive of it. Now he's more pronounced about it. Uh, there's more talk about antibody testing, so you get a sense of, of you know what the uh, the truly and uh, percentage of infected are in a particular area as we think about a phased return, so you get some better modeling in terms of infected and potential to be infected, and do we have the resources for those that don't have a developed immunity to it, and so on and so forth. Um, but that but that also seems to be taking forever to come online. That could have been done in parallel fashion. I, I talked to a friend of mine as I relate to Dr. Klein, who works for. Chem Bio Diagnostics in Long Island, and they have a 15-minute test that can be administered by a medical professional that uh, has an, a letter from the FDA waiting for emergency use authorization. And there's five competitive tests to the test that they have. You know, why isn't this online? Why aren't we doing testing in parallel fashion to get more information to at least better inform the decisions that we're making that impact people's lives on each side of the equation? Right. It's absolutely essential to do it, you know, and, and, and the public health people just, just sort of look on this as we just want to prevent deaths right now. And we're not looking at the bigger picture where you need that antibody testing to inform uh, political decisions about when you reopen the economy. But, you know, but the public health professionals, the economy is not their job. You know, they're just, you know, I just want to, pre- I don't want COVID deaths blamed on me. So, so we should take every conservative measure to prevent that. It's somewhat like the FDA. You know, I just don't want anyone to die from a drug that I approve. So I'd rather just, you know, t- take forever to approve drugs to make sure that um, uh, that nothing bad happens that gets blamed on me. Well, maybe that, that tunnel yeah. vision that they have. 
maybe a post COVID-19, you'll be vindicated with respect to reduced regulatory hurdles at FDA, the way that you were, you've been vindicated about plastic bag bans, which are now being reversed during the (laughs) pandemic when cloth bags are being banned after uh, San Francisco and all these communities went to ban plastic bags to virtue signal to their eco constituents. Right. Well, these these things do bring that out. I mean, I really hope there's big reform at the FDA and that, and, you know, there are proposals that we should really drastically cut back their authority to, to you know, to, uh, to slow things down and to give people a lot more choices to, you know, to um, uh, on which drugs to use and give companies more latitude to move quickly, you know. And they should be doing that, you know, whether there's an emergency or not, you know, quicker movement saves lives. He is John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist of the New York Times, co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and how we can rule it. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Handshakes and horoscopes. Both may go. I'd be sad about the former, not so much the latter. A handshake, a eulogy, a fun piece of National Review by Tyler Grant. The handshake is instructive, always has been. It tells you who exudes gravitas, who projects safety, who hasn't worked with their hands, who concedes insecurity, who sweats, who is earnest, who wants to be taken seriously, who isn't serious, and who can look you in the eye. Uh, a firm handshake. It's one of the first things your father teaches you, right? Don't be, don't give me one of those dead fish handshakes. A handshake confers something. A handshake plus eye contact confers something. This is why um, men of honor will conduct transactions on a handshake agreement, as uh, Tyler Grant notes. In business, a handshake was as greeting was uh, a greeting as much as a way to close a transaction. There's a whole body of common law behind the handshake agreement. So maybe in its demise and absence, we have a sense of what we have truly lost, an inability to put our guard down. What was once a socially permissive way to touch one another in all settings until now uh, will, excuse me, will now be reserved, at least for the distant present, for those in highly restrictive, disinfected ones. Men and women will no longer be forced to take each other closer than arm's length. Yeah, that is a sadness, I think. Now, in my circle, I'm still shaking hands. I'm not doing the fist bump or the elbow bump or the foot bump or whatever the heck. And you know what? Handshake and then you can put hand sanitizer on it on your hands if you want just to abide all of the protocols. But, uh, you know, it's this, it goes back to what I referenced uh, at the very beginning of this outbreak. Uh, C.S. Lewis from World War II talking about, uh, you know, in times of great uh, trial, you want to find ways to continue to be human. You don't stop being human. Do human things, like a handshake. Now, the flip side, and this is great, (laughs) some things have been exposed, just in case there was any doubt. Uh, From the Toronto Star, March 20th. This horoscope column includes some suggestions that are contrary to the advice to socially distance and self-quarantine, which have been urged by local health agencies, the provincial and Canadian governments. This is because horoscopes were written a few weeks ago before the warnings were issued. How did they not predict them? 
To allow us to focus on reporting the news, some aspects of putting together a news site routinely take place a couple weeks in advance. Right, but that's why you have those third-eye prognosticators with the with the uh, uh, globes, right? Over the next few weeks, you will notice the tone of our horoscope column will change to reflect the time we find ourselves living in. In the meantime, please follow the advice of public health agencies and the government first before you follow the uh, soothsayers reading your palms or making predictions based on the uh, angle of the moons and other celestial bodies, right? I don't, I don't even understand how horoscopes work, but uh, I, you know, vaguely do. Uh, I just, <laughs> just love the whole predicate for these horoscopes, which are widely read sections of the newspapers. Still, uh, is uh, conceded in that editorial note, isn't it? From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Health insurance in the time of COVID-19 has been a topic that's uh, come up again and again during the task force briefings over the last several weeks. Uh, because Trump and Pence have discussed uh, some of the big health insurance providers that are waiving any co-pays with respect to COVID-19 testing, with respect to COVID-19 treatment for those infected. Uh, but there's also been the back and forth between the press corps and both the president and vice president about uh, uh, health insurance coverage for those that are not Medicaid eligible and who otherwise don't have health insurance as they're a thought to reopening uh, the enrollment period for uh, the exchanges during this time period for those who are uninsured. For more on all things health insurance related in this time, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend C. Stephen Tucker. He is the founder and principal broker for healthinsurancementors.com and a nationally recognized expert in the private health insurance market to the extent that it, the private health insurance market will still continue to exist. CS so, yes, Tucker, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Let's start with the uh, uninsured and uh, president Trump, vice president Pence have essentially said, uh, you know, something that we're looking at uh, to make provision for those who are uninsured in, in this time. Um, is there anything that has been, uh, uh, has been produced uh, in that vein? Well, it depends on the type of exchange that the state has. For example, here in Illinois, we have a state-federal partnership exchange. So it is up to the federal government as to whether or not they would open the exchanges outside of the national open enrollment period. We've had about nine states thus far that have a state-based exchange. So they make their own decisions. If they choose to open the exchanges outside of the annual open enrollment period, that is uh, their decision. And they consult with local health insurers and they make that decision. And several of those states have done that thus far. But we cannot make that that decision arbitrarily in Illinois because we do not have a state-based exchange. So it's reliant upon 
the administration to decide to open the exchanges or not. The reason that they're choosing not to do so is because if they make that decision, 36 states are going to have to open the exchanges in the middle of the year. And that is typically a no-no because, as you know, the ACA, Obamacare, requires health insurers to cover all pre-existing conditions. And so they have to restrict enrollment to a short open enrollment window once a year from November 1st to December 15th, as the state of Ohio and nine other states did long before Obamacare, in order to ensure that people do not simply wait until they, quote, need health insurance to purchase it. If you do that, human nature dictates people will simply wait till they're sick, they will buy a policy, they will use that policy to cover whatever procedures are coming up in the near future, and then they will cancel that coverage. And that's called system gaming, as our former president used that term over and over again. The reason of having an annual open enrollment period is to control system gaming so you keep premiums low for everyone. And that's the concept behind restricting enrollment. And so uh, is that then left for for uh, those uh, who are uninsured in a state like Illinois? Is that then left to work out with uh, the state and and talking about, uh, for example, some sort of expansion of Medicaid to cover those individuals? Yeah, that's an option. And also people have to understand the vast majority of people in this country, over 180 million people, have employer-sponsored health insurance. Right. And the law already provides a special enrollment period of 60 days where if you lose employer-sponsored coverage, they don't have to open the exchanges outside of the open enrollment period. They are already open all year long for anyone who has lost employer-sponsored coverage. You have 60 days to buy any plan you want. You don't have to have a special rule to open the exchanges. They are already open for you if you've lost employer-sponsored coverage. When you're talking about employer-sponsored coverage and people who've lost their employer as a, a, in terms of being laid off and now are uh, in the near term facing the prospect of uh, having to pay for COBRA and uh, that considerably more expensive, of course. Uh, is there anything I, I know, again, there was initial talk per what was done during the Great Recession a little bit more than a decade ago. Uh, government subsidies for people who need to purchase COBRA insurance. Has anything been advanced in that direction to provide subsidies for those who lose their private employer provided health insurance, can't afford COBRA, and are going to need some help? Yes. So, again, everyone who's lost employer sponsored coverage already has an open enrollment period right now. And if their income is below 400% of the federal poverty level for an individual, that's $51,040. For a married couple, that's $57,640. For a family of four, that's $103,000 in adjusted gross income. If you make less than that, then you are already eligible for what's called an advanced premium tax credit, or what we call in slang an Obamacare subsidy. And that will dramatically, dramatically lower the cost of health insurance for all those people under that income level. You just can't be too low on the income scale. If you drop below 138% of the federal poverty level, then you're eligible for Medicaid. And that means that you are reliant upon managed care. In other words, you can't get a PPO plan as you can in the individual marketplace. You are stuck, unfortunately, with managed care HMOs. But either way, the system is set up for people who have lost coverage to buy health insurance right now. They don't need a special order from the federal government. It's already designed to protect those people if they lost coverage right now. An employer. You also have uh, varying reimbursement rates for various treatments, don't you? Because there was some discussion I've seen about uh, 
the use of ventilators and, 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 and some doctors suggesting that ventilators are being overused where perhaps a sleep apnea machine would be a better uh, use, better treatment for a particular patient in a particular case. Uh, but, but the reimbursement rates are vary based on the uh, equipment that you're using. That's exactly right. And Medicare, of course, everything goes by Medicare reimbursement rates. And so they put out their, their reimbursement schedule and everything, everybody has to follow that. And insurance companies pay dramatically higher than the Medicare reimbursement rate, like Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, for 151% higher than the Medicare reimbursement rate. And so, uh, but everything follows that template. Depending on what the procedure is, there's a reimbursement already predetermined by Medicare for that. When, when we're looking at the health insurance market now, you've just uh, described, uh, I think, very succinctly, helpfully, the, uh, the private health insurance market and what uh, the various exigencies uh, create in terms of uh, uh, support or, uh, or, or options. Uh, it, it, has anything really changed other than these big, some of the big uh, providers uh, providing, uh, uh, waving off co-pays and, uh, for COVID-related uh, testing and treatment. Has, has anything really changed with the health insurance market pre-COVID-19 outbreak to present? Well, I will say if you live in a free state, which of course does not include our state, mm-hmm. but if you live in Indiana or you live in Texas or you live in uh, Florida or 20 other ra- states led by rational adults, Uh, You have wonderful options thanks to President Trump. In our state, for example, you cannot buy health insurance that is not ACA qualified, in other words, not Obamacare, for any longer than a six-month period of time. So the coverage ends in six months, and if you're sick or injured at that point, you can't qualify for other health insurance. So that's why you will not hear me, for example, advertising on the air in the beginning of the, the year because you cannot buy a short-term health plan, which by the way, are a third of the price of Obamacare, one third, because they don't cover pre-existing conditions, right? That's the biggest reason. So they keep the costs low. They will cover new conditions or new injuries. But our legislators in Springfield made the decision to limit those to six months, making them very dangerous to buy on January 1st, because what good is any plan that ends in June and then you're sick or injured. You won't be able to buy health insurance for six more months until the exchange is open again. But in Indiana, they followed the full Trump restoration of short-term plans. And you can buy a short-term policy in Indiana and lock in your premium for 36 months, three years. And you get a national PPO network where you can go to our teaching hospitals like University of Chicago and Rush, which you can't do with an ACA-qualified individual policy. So there are great options in free states. There are far fewer options here in Illinois. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting and noteworthy. Uh, Says something about uh, the importance of state and local officials, I suppose. He is C.S. Tucker, C. Stephen Tucker, founder and principal broker for healthinsurancementors.com. C.S., thanks as always for your insights. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Fire Tony Fauci? No. Uh-uh. No. Bad idea. Bad retweet by the president. I'll get to that uh, all in a second. But first, the uh, interview. Uh, I've been playing snippets from uh, Tony Fauci's interview with Jake Tapper throughout the show. The uh, statements that Fauci made that have uh, provided an opportunity for the D.C. press corps to try and gin up controversy, try and put a wedge between Fauci and Trump on uh, the handling of the outbreak and walk Trump into a political trap. Fire Tony Fauci, create a controversy, lose public standing, make this about you rather than the American people uh, would be a colossal mistake. So hopefully President Trump doesn't take the bait. And also, there's no reason to if you actually listen to what Tony Fauci said here again, the separation between the two that the media is reporting, which doesn't actually exist when you listen to what Fauci said. So Tony Fauci on uh, what would have happened question that has led to uh, the overreaction from the press corps and the desire to try and set a trap for the president per their narrative over the weekend to what would have happened. It's Trump's fault that the uh, virus has spread. This is the headlines in the Washington Post and the New York Times and AP. Here's uh, Tony Fauci on the what would have happened question from Tapper. As I've said many times, we look at it from a pure health standpoint. We make a recommendation. Often the recommendation is taken. Sometimes it's not. But we, it is what it is. We are where we are right now. Do you think lives could have been saved uh, if social distancing, physical distancing, stay-at-home measures had started third week of February instead of mid-March? You know, Jake, again, it's the what would have, what could have. It's very difficult to go back and say that. I mean, obviously, you could logically say that if you had a process that was ongoing and you started mitigation earlier, you could have saved lives. Yeah. And by the way, that's not really any different than the exchange last week, one of the task force briefings where it required both Trump as well as Fauci, as well as uh, Burke, so all three of them, not just both, to engage Acosta with tw- his perfect 2020 hindsight if you had done the things that you're doing now before you knew you needed to do them, wouldn't have things been better? Yeah, of course. I'm sorry we don't have, we're not omniscient like you, Jim. It's basically the same thing. So I really don't understand the controversy. In addition to that, when he was asked the question about opening up the economy, what's the process to reopen? Again, as we played a little bit earlier in the show, listen to this and tell me what the separation here is between him and Trump. You know, I think it could probably start at least in some ways, maybe next month. And again, Jake, it's so difficult to make those kinds of predictions because they always get thrown back at you if if it doesn't happen. Not by you, but, you know, by by any of a number of people. Yeah, right. Uh, including you, Jake, and everybody else at CNN, of course. Uh, also, Fauci having to uh, bat away the unfair comparisons to South Korea. This is also an underreported aspect of the interview because everybody just wants to focus on that kernel that they can manipulate into, as I said, a wedge between Trump and Fauci, or at least attempt to. But Fauci on, you know, why isn't the U.S. doing as well as South Korea is doing? To just say this is all happening because we got started too late. Obviously, if you look, could you have done something a little bit earlier? Would it have had an impact? Obviously. But where we are right now 
is the result of a number of factors. The size of the country, the heterogeneity of the country. It's, I think it's a little bit unfair to compare us to South Korea, where they had an outbreak in Daegu and they had the capability of immediately, essentially shutting it off completely in a way that we may not have been able to do in this country. So this is the basis to fire Tony Fauci or whatever frustrations Trump has? No, absolutely not. It's ridiculous. And hopefully Trump will come out and say uh, exactly that, particularly after he retweeted unnecessarily this tweet from Deanna Lorraine, who's a congressional candidate on California running against Pelosi, a quixotic race. Fauci is now saying that had Trump listened to the medical experts earlier, he could have saved more lives. That's not exactly what he's saying. And by the way, he's necessarily including himself. Fauci was telling people on February 29th there was nothing to worry about. It posed no threat to the public at large. Time to hashtag fire Fauci. That is unhinged, that assertion that it's time to fire Fauci based on what you just heard. And yes, Fauci did say uh, there was nothing to worry about at the time. In fact, here's Tony Fauci on the Today Show on February 29th. So, Dr. Fauci, it's Saturday morning in America. People are waking up right now with real concerns about this. They want to go to malls and movies, maybe the gym as well. Should we be changing our habits? And if so, how? No, right now, at this moment, there is no need to change anything that you're doing on a day-by-day basis. Right now, the risk is still low, but this could change. I've said that many times. Yeah, so he, he, this is where we're at on February 29th. Based on what we know, this could change, and ultimately it did. Okay, but Fauci is not throwing Trump under the bus, and there's no reason for Trump to retweet that without a qualifier on the time to hashtag fire Fauci so you don't have this unnecessary controversy bubble up and distract people's attention from the core questions that actually matter to our quality of lives. The, the uh, response to the virus and the response to the economic crisis that's been self-inflicted. The other thing that's interesting to note, too, and, and by the way, just uh, remember, Trump has been pumping up Fauci for the last four weeks at these White House press briefings, as well as Dr. Burks, as well as the other members of the task force and the, the, those have who have key responsibilities for the various aspects of the federal response, which he should be. So now you're going to turn around and over uh, this this uh, uh, remark in a Jake Tapper interview and uh, suggest that uh, he should be fired. It's really silly. Unforced error. Uh, And it also just detracts attention away from what the press won't cover. Like the quality of the modeling, like the fact that uh, as Molly Hemingway wrote in the Federalist, that it turns out that when Trump questioned uh, Cuomo's, suggestion that New York state needed 30 to 40,000 ventilators. He was right to question it as right now it looks like New York taps out at needing about uh, 5,500 ventilators, which they have off by a factor of seven or eight hospitalizations, IHME model off by a factor of seven and eight. The uh, uh, Neil Ferguson Imperial College London model. We know how far that's been off. Also, thanks to Scott Johnson over a Powerline blog, we now know more about how far, how much Neil Ferguson has been off with his modeling of previous pandemics. I mean, incredible numbers. He talked, uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, in 2005, projected the avian flu, the bird flu, could claim up to 200 million people. 200 million people. 
Around 40 million people died in the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak. There are six times more people on the planet, so you could scale it up to around 200 million people, probably. The Department of Health contingency plan states there there could be between 21,500 and 709 deaths in Britain. The death toll from 2003 to 2020 from avian flu, 455. But when you distract attention away from these things, you undermine your legitimacy, the president does, while also not properly putting the legitimacy of the D.C. press corps that seeks to undermine you in context. You're doing their work for them. Stop it. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, was on with uh, Margaret Brown on Face the Nation. Mentioned a bit earlier in the show as well. And uh, he was asked by Brennan about... uh, President Trump's uh, jawboning of the World Health Organization. Is this the appropriate time in the midst of a pandemic to uh, be ascribing blame to the World Health Organization, to be talking about defunding the World Health Organization? Here's what Scott Gottlieb said. The president raised a lot of valid concerns. Uh, China was not truthful with the world at the outset of this. Had they been more truthful with the world, which would have enabled them to be more truthful with themselves, they might have actually been able to contain this entirely. Uh, And there is some growing evidence to suggest that. As late as January 20th, they were still saying that there was no human-to-human transmission, and the WHO is validating those claims on January 14th, sort of enabling the obfuscation from China. I think going forward, the WHO needs to commit to an after-action report that specifically examines what China did or didn't tell the world and how that stymied the global response to this. I also think they need to embrace Taiwan's role in the global health community and allow them to attend the World Health Assembly. Right now, they've frozen China out, the WHO has, at sort of the behest of China. And that's hampered the global response because China's been a very important partner. To give you just one more anecdote, China didn't share the viral strains, and the WHO should have made them do that. Had they shared those early on, we could have developed a diagnostic test earlier, validated it earlier. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Lan He Chen. He's a fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of domestic policy studies in the public policy program at Stanford University. Lan He, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Dan. Uh, You've written on the topic uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week, Lost in Beijing, the story of the WHO. And I wonder uh, how you react to uh, what uh, Dr. Gottlieb had to say about uh, the WHO and specifically vis-a-vis China. Yeah, look, I've made a lot of the same points and and in the piece, uh, a a lot of the specific incidents that uh, that Scott refers to are really the proof points for why it is that the World Health Organization um, does deserve quite a bit of blame. And in particular, their relationship with Beijing and the way in which they have simply parroted uh, China's claims regarding the novel coronavirus are sources of deep concern. And they're sources of deep concern because you're talking about an organization in the form of the World Health Organization that is supposedly committed to global public health. Well, instead of being committed to public health, they've been more committed to placating and to satisfying the Chinese government than to really getting to the bottom 
of what this uh, coronavirus does and what it did at a very early stage of the game. And it really caused a lot of people around the world to be behind the curve. So I think a lot of what, uh, what Scott Gottlieb has said is right. And I think that a lot of what uh, the president has said about the World Health Organization is right as well. You uh, write in your piece in the journal, the WHO's next director general must not be a rubber stamp for Beijing. How did we get a rubber stamp for Beijing in the first place with Dr. Tedros? Well, Dr. Tedros was strongly backed by the Chinese when he ran for director general a few years ago. He ran against a a British uh, doctor who was the preferred choice of the United States. And what the Chinese did essentially was to seek uh, the support of other countries in the World Health Organization for Dr. Tedros. In terms of Dr. Tedros's relationship with China, that actually goes back to his time as a senior member of the Ethiopian government. So he was the foreign minister of Ethiopia, as well as the health minister in Ethiopia. In fact, when he was health minister uh, back in the 2000s, he was accused of covering up a number of cholera outbreaks in Ethiopia. But more to the point about China, what Dr. Tedros uh, did when he was foreign minister of Ethiopia was to cultivate a very cozy relationship with Beijing, one in which China sent Ethiopia billions of dollars of aid, as well as loan guarantees for infrastructure projects. And so uh, to this point, in fact, China is probably the biggest investor in Ethiopia. So that relationship between Tedros and China's government goes back quite some way. And a lot of people, when he ran for director general, were concerned about those ties. Uh, Notwithstanding that, Tedros got the support of a lot of folks because, as I said, the Chinese campaigned hard for him. He was also the first African uh, candidate, candidate from the African continent, to be considered for WHO chief. And he got a lot of support from African countries as well. So in any case, we are where we are now. But the relationship between Tedros, China, the WHO in China, these are all things that deserve a a bigger microscope and a bigger investigation. Uh, When we come back, I want to close the loop on the WHO and then talk about our relationship with China going forward, how this uh, will necessarily need to change that. More with Lan He Chen, fellow at the Hoover Institution, director of domestic policy studies in the public policy program at Stanford. We'll be right back with more after this. Fixers and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Lan He Chen. He's a fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of domestic policy studies in the public policy program at Stanford University. Uh, talking about his piece on uh, the World Health Organization and uh, China. And I wonder then, because uh, the United States did not get its preferred director general last go around, if uh, maybe a middle way in terms of trying to at least take a stab at reforming the World Health Organization and its operation is to say, look, either we're going to get um, a director general that uh, you know we can ha- have some general agreement on in the Western world, 
uh, or we're going to withdraw our funding for the World Health Organization. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that we've got a huge point of leverage in the World Health Organization because we send $400 million a year in U.S. taxpayer money to support the World Health Organization every year. And uh, we don't demand any conditions on that money. We just send it to the WHO and say, here you go. Uh, spend it, uh, you know, in, in the way that you see fit and spend it prudently according to what you believe is best. One of the things that we need to give serious thought to, and I mentioned this in the piece, is demanding some return on our investment. In other words, saying, look, if we're going to send you $400 million a year, it's not going to be a blank check. We're going to demand that the organization abide by higher standards of transparency and accountability. So we know, for example, if there are direct conflicts between the leadership of the organization and any member country, not just China, so that we know why the organization did not investigate more fully uh, the start of the coronavirus crisis. Dr. Gottlieb, Scott Gottlieb mentioned this in his interview. Uh, why didn't the WHO investigate more thoroughly when China made the claim back on January 14th that there could not be human-to-human -human transmission of the novel coronavirus? Why did the WHO simply said, say, yeah, you know, we agree with that and we're going to disseminate that finding? So these are all things, you know, demanding transparency, demanding accountability, ensuring that the leadership is responsive rather than simply a rubber stamp for any member country. These are important things that we can demand in return for what we're investing in the organization. And also, as it pertains to Taiwan, he mentioned the recognition of Taiwan and um, this, uh, the, the, the name that shall not be spoke by uh, members of the World Health Organization, at least the senior members. And uh, Taiwan, uh, you know, is resuming baseball uh, this week. Uh, so perhaps there was some lessons to be learned from Taiwan that could also be shared globally. But uh, the WHO doing the bidding of China won't even recognize Taiwan's existence. Yeah, th this has been a big problem. And, and it's not a problem because of politics. It's a problem because of the impact on public health. Right. And very early on, uh, Taiwan, which China considers to be a renegade province, so has always tried to keep out of the diplomatic community has tried to keep Taiwan out of international organizations like the WHO. In the case of the WHO, they've succeeded. The problem with that is Taiwan was one of the first uh, places to sound the alarm on the coronavirus. Back in December, they wrote a note to the WHO saying, please send us more information about this new virus, which is apparently causing uh, people to need to be treated in isolation. And the WHO simply ignored the request rather than investigating and responding to it. And that has something to do with the fact that Beijing has always wanted uh, Taiwan out of the WHO. And so what the WHO did was to prioritize politics over public health instead of investigating and instead of saying, okay, well, we've got an inquiry from a legitimate source. Let's look into this. They simply said, we're not going to entertain the possibility because it'll offend Beijing. And that is not something the World Health Organization should be doing. They should be incorporating and including Taiwan in the conversation. They should at least be investigating these things. And certainly for the sake of global public health, if there is a virus that someone identifies that causes a problem, they owe it to the world and to their members to do a little bit more than simply shrug it off because of politics. There's a lot of discussion going on now. A lot of op-eds uh, spoke on this show with uh, John Yu from UC Berkeley last week about the topic, uh, how to make China pay for what they've done. And uh, give us a sense of sort of maybe your rank order priorities in terms of what is the best way for America to impress upon China uh, how uh, how upset we are with what they've done and make them pay a real price so as to 
you know, modify behavior on a, on a, on a forward-looking basis? Well, this is going to be a very difficult challenge because part of the incentive structure in, a, um, in an autocratic society, in one like China's, which is top-down, uh, dictatorial, is that there is no reason for the government to promote things like dissent. There is no reason for the government to respect the freedom of press, the freedom of religion, which we've seen over and over again, the Chinese government being willing to suppress. And so part of the challenge is just the basic incentive structure when you have a, a communist autocratic country like China is, and increasingly over the last few years under the leadership of uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the, the president and general secretary of the Communist Party there, uh, you know, China has become, I, I would argue, even more closed and even more uh, uh, not, not open to dissent. So one of the things that I think we need to make absolutely clear in our dealings with China is that we have some economic leverage as well. And it always comes back to economics when you're thinking about the relationship between the U.S. and China. But we have got to demonstrate our ability to have some independence from China when it comes to important things, right? So we're seeing this debate now around personal protective equipment in the U.S., pharmaceutical manufacture. We need to demonstrate that we've got some ability to procure things from places other than China so we're not economically dependent on them. That's one thing. The second thing is um, we need to continue to stand up for the values that make America what it is. And that is thing, that those are things like freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, uh, the respect for human rights and the rule of law. These are all things that we have to continue to, to, to sound the alarm on and to be willing to talk about. And the U.S. government's got to be willing to share those views at the highest level. The third thing is we've got to be better about uh, ensuring that China knows we're keeping watch on what they're doing in international organizations like the WHO. And the president, by the way, has gone a long way on this. He has said that we need to have a person solely dedicated in the U.S. to rooting out Chinese influence in organizations like the WHO, like the United Nations. That's the first time we've had that sort of thing in decades. And so uh, we need to be willing to tell the Chinese, look, your influence uh, cannot continue to infiltrate these organizations and we're gonna be watching. And then the last thing I'll just say is this, um, there's a lot of people who believe that we need to completely decouple from China. In other words, we need to completely end uh, interactions with them, financial interactions, diplomatic interactions, et cetera. I'm not sure that's the best way, frankly, to influence this relationship because China is it, it is there. It is a powerful presence in the Asia Pacific region. So we need to continue to deal with them, but we need to deal with them from a position of strength, not one of weakness. He is Lan He Chen. He's a fellow at the Hoover Institution, director of domestic policy studies and the public policy program at Stanford. Lan He, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Listen, the more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show and uh, to uh, end the program, this this, uh, installment of the program with uh, a little bit of comic relief. Come on, you Mr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, offering this review of uh, the situation uh, amid uh, dozens of drag queens on a um, promo for RuPaul's Drag Race show. Can't say I'm familiar with it, but uh, here's AOC talking to these drag queen patriots. 
Her words. I see you standing up to that man every day and... How can we all even, like, complain about anything when you literally stand in the face of what I think is the most evil, evil. the worst parts yeah. of our nature as humans, yeah. and you stand up against him and you say, Every day. no, we, that's so hard. It, it, you know, but we all do it in our own ways. People think Congress and government is all about leading people, but ultimately a lot of our politics is about following the public will. And the people who change what people think are artists and drag queens. Yeah. And let's not forget who threw that first break at Stonewall. Yes. You know, that is what led to us passing the Equality Act in the House in this term, marriage equality. It starts with you. I mean, you're patriots. You are. You are. You are patriots. And I'm so proud of you all. I'm so proud to live in this country with you and with your mother and with all of us as family. On a very special RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm-hmm. Mutual admiration society, no question. No question. Uh, great news will end on a recommendation because I can't recommend RuPaul's Drag Race, but I can recommend No Safe Spaces which is available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. This is the political documentary put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that uh, speaks to how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas, unless you're calling drag queens patriots. They do so in an entertaining and powerful way. They have uh, reviews from people across the political spectrum, uh, the Alan Dershowitzes and the Cornell Wests of the world who are equally concerned about uh, a, a, a free society in which free thought and free speech are protected. Uh, this is uh, not the case in places like Hollywood on social media platforms, certainly on college campuses. No Safe Spaces uh, tells you the stories and gives you the tools to be a patriot in support of free minds, free markets, and free speech. Check it out now with your family. Available for a limited time only. No safe spaces at nosafespaces.com. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.